Our message today is about Psalm 130, and our theme is God's forgiveness and grace. God's forgiveness and grace. Most Christians know the story of John Wesley's conversion on the evening of the 24th of May, 1738. He reluctantly attended a meeting in a little nonconformist chapel in Aldersgate Street, London. And there he heard someone read from Martin Luther's preface to the Letter to the Romans. Wesley described his heart as being strangely warmed. But what isn't so well known is what happened to Wesley earlier on the same day. In the afternoon he'd attended Evensong in St Paul's Cathedral. And in the course of that service, the anthem sung was Psalm 130. The words of this psalm, together with the later exposition of the Gospel in Romans, spoke powerfully to Wesley, and his soul was brought from death into life. Someone once asked Martin Luther, which are the best psalms? Luther replied, the psalms of the Apostle Paul. You see, for Luther, the psalms of Paul were Psalms 32, 51, 130, and 143. These are four of the seven psalms which are known as penitential psalms. These psalms express the heart and desire of a person under conviction of sin. They also drive the repentant soul to God for forgiveness. In fact, Paul himself uses Psalm 32 extensively in the fourth chapter of his letter to the Romans, There it's the scriptural basis for teaching the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Psalm 130 is one of the songs of ascents. These were sung by pilgrims on their way to Jerusalem to celebrate the feasts. But Psalm 130 is in itself a song of ascents. The psalmist climbs from the depths of misery to the joy of salvation. And every soul seeking salvation must begin by recognising its own sinful state. My first main point is sorrow over sin. Sorrow over sin. Psalm 130 begins with cries. We can hear the need and anguish in the psalmist's voice. Out of the depths I have cried to you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. Here is a soul in life and death intercession with God. This isn't play acting. It isn't religion with a flair for the dramatic. It's earnest and urgent prayer. The psalmist says, Out of the depths I have cried to you, O Lord. In the Old Testament, the expression, the depths, usually describes the deep waters of the sea. But here the use is metaphorical. The psalmist is passing through deep waters in his life. He's in distress, and his big problem is his sin. He knows the only deliverance possible will be through God's grace, in other words, God's love shown towards those who don't deserve it. In verse 3, the psalmist acknowledges how impossible his position is in human terms. 
If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? The psalmist cries from the depths are pleas for mercy. These cries of distress come from a place from which there's no escape. The depths are the very place where we must have God meet us with his grace. Yet the psalmist's pleas don't just express a broken heart, they also express a resolute faith. To whom does the psalmist cry? In verses 1, 3, 5 and 7, the psalmist uses God's personal covenant name. It's rendered, as always in the Old Testament, as Lord in block capitals. This is the way scripture uses to refer to God's covenant name, Yahweh or Jehovah. But notice that in verse 2, the psalmist also uses the more ordinary term, Lord. This could also be translated as Master. The God who has entered into a personal covenant with his people must also reign in their lives as their Lord. God has made promises to his people and stands by them. But he also requires his people to keep his commandments and to submit to his lordship in all things. A servant would look to his master for help and protection. And the psalmist looks to his master, the Lord, begging that he will hear him. But in coming to the Lord, the psalmist recognises the hopelessness of humanity's condition. Verse 3. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? What if God kept a record of our sins? Could any of us defend ourselves before him? This is, of course, a rhetorical question. God does take note of all our sins. And so, because we're all guilty of sin, none of us can stand up under God's scrutiny of our lives. We have all at times ignored and flouted God's law. We've sinned again and again. Too often we try to excuse our bad behaviour by toning it down. We talk about mistakes and bad decisions. But God's word talks about ungodliness and sin. Indeed, scripture describes our sin as filthiness in the sight of a pure and spotless God. If God should mark even one of our sins, could any of us stand in his sight? The answer is a resolute no. What lies behind this question? It's the holiness of God. He is so pure that he can't even abide a hint of sin in his presence. Nothing spiritually or morally unclean, no violation of his holy law, none of it can or will go unnoticed. In the book of Revelation, the Apostle John describes God's coming judgment. People are calling for the mountains and rocks to hide them from God's wrath. They cry out that the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? Who can stand? This is the psalmist's question, and it's the question we should be asking ourselves. What will it be like for me when I'm face to face with God? This desperate concern was reflected in much of the early life of Martin Luther. In 1505, when he was 21, he was a student at the University of Erfurt. 
On a sultry day in July, he was trudging along a parched road on the outskirts of Stottenheim. Suddenly he was caught in a severe thunderstorm. A bolt of lightning knocked him to the ground and he cried out in terror, St Anne, help me, I will become a monk. Luther's life was spared and, true to his word, he subsequently entered an Augustinian monastery. But there he could find no peace. Yet it wasn't because he was confronted by the godliness of the saints. No, Luther could find no peace because he was confronted with God's ultimate holiness. How could he ever stand before a holy God? He tried his hardest to be an obedient son of the church. He fasted often. He beat his body. He spent hours confessing his sins to Father Staupitz, his spiritual director. He studied his Bible. He prayed. But nothing gave Luther the peace he thought. He found no assurance of forgiveness until God himself opened Luther's eyes to the Gospel. Luther meditated long and hard on the meaning of these words of the Apostle Paul. They're from Romans chapter 1 and they're verses 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Here's what Luther himself said. Night and day I pondered, until I saw the connection between the justice of God and the statement that the just shall live by his faith. Then I grasped that the justice of God is that righteousness by which, through grace and sheer mercy, God justifies us through faith. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through the open doors into paradise. Luther discovered that there's forgiveness with the Lord which doesn't have to be earned. God marks iniquities. He knows every sin that we commit and holds each of us accountable for each sin. But we can have our record expunged. God can wipe our slate clean so that he never holds any of our sins against us. That is what Luther discovered. And that's what everyone needs to discover and rediscover again and again. But what does God do with our iniquity? How can he know all our sins and yet not hold them against us? Another way to ask this question is, how can the holy God ever pardon ungodly sinners? God can't say, let's just forget about it. He can't ignore sin. To remain true to his character, he must maintain his inflexible justice and yet be full of grace. And in his wisdom, God has chosen to do this by sending his Son. Jesus Christ came to bear our penalty for breaking God's law. He came to be punished in our place. He came to bear our sins on the cross and suffer God's wrath. Only in this way could the Holy Lord remain just and yet reach out his hand of love and mercy to sinners. All who want to experience this salvation must follow the psalmist's example. Cry out to the Lord for his saving mercy. The Bible promises that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved.
Look to Christ as your only hope, and you will find that you have hope for today, hope for the day of judgment, and hope for all eternity. So the bad news is that all of us without exception are sinners, living under God's wrath. But the good news is that there is forgiveness with God. This is my second main point, forgiveness from God. Forgiveness from God. Verse 4. But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. We may not find forgiveness with other people. Our husband or wife may not forgive us. Our children may not forgive us. Our colleagues at work may not forgive us. We may not even be able to forgive ourselves. But there is one who will forgive us, and that one is God. He won't remember our transgressions against us. He will remove them as far as the east is from the west if we ask him for mercy. Moses asked to see God, and he received this defining revelation of what God is like. The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. That's found in Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 to 7. What a wonderful word for Moses. What wonderful, joyful, comforting good news for anybody. There are important things we should know about God's forgiveness. First, God's forgiveness is inclusive. Verse 4 of our psalm doesn't say there's forgiveness for this sin or that. It doesn't leave out some sins, perhaps the very ones you've committed. It says no limits at all. Whatever your sin may be, there is forgiveness with God. You may be utterly ignorant of the Bible. You may not know a single item of theology. But you can know this at least. There is forgiveness with God. Second, God's forgiveness is for now. The translators have rightly set verse 4 in the present tense. There is forgiveness with the Lord. And the force of the sentence is even stronger in the Hebrew, where there's no verb at all. The Hebrew simply says, with you, forgiveness. You don't have to live your life in a state of continual uncertainty, hoping that eventually you will have forgiveness. You don't have to try to earn forgiveness. There is free forgiveness now at this very moment. And it is for you. Whoever you may be, wherever you are, or whatever you've done. Third, God's forgiveness is for those who want it. There's forgiveness there, but it isn't automatically yours. You must ask God for it and trust in him to give it to you. The writer of our psalm isn't pretending that he doesn't need forgiveness. He's confessing his sin, not covering it up. But he's asking God for mercy because he know he, he's asking God for mercy because he knows he has no right to God's forgiveness. Come to God and ask him for the forgiveness you need, and he will provide it. And fourth, forgiveness leads to godly living. 
Some claim the Bible's teaching about salvation by grace must lead to immoral living. They argue that if God forgives us anything we do, why shouldn't we just go on sinning? But the sinner whose repentance is genuine will be truly grateful for God's forgiveness. So his salvation will bring with it a heightened reverence for God. This is what verse 4 teaches when it adds to forgiveness the phrase, that you may be feared. Fear here is a reverence of God and a fear of hurting him by breaking his law. This will be our attitude when we know we've been loved and saved by God in spite of our sin. Charles Spurgeon translates this verse as, There is forgiveness with thee, that thou mayest be loved and worshipped and served. And those are the inevitable effects of God's forgiveness, love, worship and service. Those who've been forgiven are humbled. They are overwhelmed by God's goodness. From time to time they do sin again, but in their deepest hearts they don't want to. And when they do sin, they hurry back to God for forgiveness. The forgiveness we receive from God in salvation gives us a purpose for living now. And it gives us a home in heaven. But first and foremost, it brings us to God. Why did Jesus come and die to save us? The Apostle Peter says, Christ suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. If what you call salvation hasn't led you to worship and adore Jesus, then what you have isn't biblical salvation. It may be religion, it may use Christian vocabulary, but if it doesn't leave you humble, grateful and glorying in Jesus alone, then it's empty religion and it will leave you in your sins. But if you truly know Christ, if God has truly redeemed you and made you his child, then your constant hope will be in the Lord and you will be a true worshipper. So the first half of Psalm 130 has centred on the need for forgiveness and the source of forgiveness. The second half of the psalm concentrates on the worship that results from forgiveness and it explains what this worship involves. My third and final point, the glory of worship. The glory of worship. The tone changes in this section. Crying out for mercy and receiving forgiveness lead to waiting in hope in the Lord. This is the life of worship. This is the glory of worship. Few people enjoy waiting patiently, but true worship requires us to do just that. Verses 5 to 6. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I do hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than those who watch for the morning. Yes, more than those who watch for the morning. What specifically is the psalmist waiting for here? <clears throat> he isn't waiting for forgiveness of his sin. Verse 4 makes clear that he has already found forgiveness. In fact, we see the first result of this in a reverent fear of God. No, the psalmist is now waiting for God himself. It's God whom he has offended by his sin, and it's fellowship with God that has been broken and needs to be restored. The psalmist wants the intimacy with God that should and will follow forgiveness. So he's waiting for it. He's waiting in faith. 
The believer who waits for God looks for him to do what he has promised. When someone waits on God, he or she is hoping in his word, as the psalmist puts it in verse 5. And he goes on to compare the way he waits on the Lord with the way watchmen wait for the morning. Cities in the ancient world were encircled by walls, and watchmen patrolled the tops of these walls to sound an alarm in the event of enemy attack. During the darkness of the night, a city is more vulnerable. It's harder to see the enemy approach. So watchmen eagerly wait for morning light. Eventually the light of dawn begins to break over the horizon and a sense of relief sweeps over the watchman. The night has passed, all is safe. So the psalmist's comparison conveys a sense of eager longing and it also conveys a sense of a hope that won't be disappointed. The watchmen are sure that the morning will come. The sun will rise as surely as it set the previous day. But we shouldn't imagine that waiting on God is a passive pursuit. It isn't the waiting room sort of waiting where you sit and thumb mindlessly through a magazine. No, the psalmist has in mind the waiting of a watchman in ancient times. So it's waiting that's keen and active. Waiting on the Lord is really synonymous with praying. How do we eagerly look for something from God? We ask for it. And we ask again and again and again. Jesus taught us, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. The grammatical mood in the original language is the present continuous imperative. That means Jesus is saying here that we're to keep on asking, we're to keep on seeking and we're to keep on knocking. When we pray, we acknowledge that we have no control over the destiny of our lives. We have a prime example of our inability to control events in the coronavirus outbreak. Who could have imagined its devastating impact? We cannot govern what might happen to us. So it's imperative that we seek the Lord through his word and power to act for us. Scripture and prayer keep our souls engaged with God. One of the primary ways to wait on God is to pray the scriptures. If we're serious about worshipping the Lord, we should start praying the Psalms. And we can learn much too from the many prayers we find in the New Testament. We should take what God says and echo it back to him in prayer. The Puritans were great prayers of scripture. Let us too be believers who pray the Bible. The last stanza of our psalm is extraordinary. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is mercy, and with him is abundant redemption, and he shall redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Up to this point, all the psalmist's thoughts have centred around himself, his sorrow for sin, his repentance, his prayer, his faith and his hope in God. But now, having found forgiveness, he turns to those about him, to Israel, to his fellow countrymen, and he encourages them to put their hope in God, just as he has. 
They too have hope because of God's nature. They too have hope because the Lord is mercy and abundant redemption. What the psalmist has found to be true in his own experience can be true for anyone. It's something anyone can discover. God is as forgiving now as he ever has been, and he will always be this same forgiving God. God's nature doesn't change. <clears throat> so says the psalmist, hope in the Lord. The psalm ends with a profound promise. He shall redeem Israel from all his iniquities. When the psalmist wrote this psalm, it was at a particular stage in the historical unfolding of God's progressive revelation. So the psalmist may not have fully understood what he is prophesying here. He couldn't know exactly how God would remain just and yet save sinners from the punishment they deserve. But the Holy Spirit moved the psalmist to write what he did, and so it is a true prediction. God's provision would only be made entirely clear with Jesus' death and resurrection centuries later. So the psalmist wouldn't have understood the details of what would be involved, yet even so he understood a lot. <clears throat> Already he's looking ahead to the time God would accomplish an effective redemption from sin's penalty. A time when God would provide a forgiveness and cleansing for all who trust in him and ask him for it. We can understand this redemption because it has been accomplished by Jesus Christ and because its meaning has been explained in the Bible. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. Yet Jesus took that death in our place. He bore sin's full punishment. So if we trust in Jesus, God will forgive us freely and we will be freed from sin's power. In 1530, Martin Luther lived for a while in the fortress at Coburg. During that time, it seems he suffered from migraines. One night he saw what appeared to be burning torches passing before his eyes four times. This was probably the aura that migraine sufferers experience. Another night he saw three lights and fainted. His servant did his best to revive Luther. Eventually Luther recovered and he asked his servant to read him a portion from the letter to the Galatians. During the reading he fell asleep. Then when he awoke, Luther was full of joy, and he said to his servant, Come, despite the devil, let us sing the psalm De Profundis. The Latin phrase De Profundis means out of the depths. This was Luther's way of describing Psalm 130. So despite the devil, let us sing this psalm too. Let's rehearse it in private and sing it in public. Let it fill our lives, our church services and our witness with joy. The more we give glory to God, the more we experience the joy of Christ. Amen. <laughs>